This week on the show, we have a journey to ZFS RAID Zen 1 on NetBSD, FreeBSD networking basics from the FreeBSD Foundation about Wi-Fi and Bluetooth, smuggling code into the PlayStation via the NetBSD driver hall, KDE FreeBSD continuous integration, remembering build tool, and more. This week's episode of BSD now. BSD Now, episode 457, the NetBSD Wheelbarrow, recorded on the 18th of May 2022. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow for the online backup for truly paranoid people. And if you want to support this show, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash bsdnow. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome. We have interesting headlines for you. We always find something, so we thought this is no different. Uh, we have found a journey to ZFS RAID Z1 with different sized disks on NetBSD. Yeah, uh, so the user over here on Blogspot goes on, the joys of having a redundant remote backup machine is that if it dies, you do not immediately lose any data, just some of your redundancy. On the other hand, sufficient remoteness can make the process of rebuilding an, uh, annoying enough to encourage a certain desire not to have to repeat it. Uh, so I find myself wanting to set up a NetBSD machine with a ZFS RAID Z1, but without sufficient equally sized large disks or enough uh, drive bays to pack in many smaller disks. In the world of ZFS, that's a pretty big liability. So what do they have? They have five empty disk bays, one eight terabyte drive, two six terabyte drives, and a seemingly unlimited number of two terabyte or smaller disks. That's it, impossible. If I had a month to plan, maybe I could come up with something, but this means I would only have, uh, I would only need a wheelbarrow and that would be something. So the question is how to use different size disks with ZFS comes up reasonably often. And the answer is invariably you don't, uh, quite often followed by various ways in which you would not be able to do it, one way in which you could do it, but everything pretends to be the size of the smallest disk, so you have uh, less free space. One option to build a stack of ZFS on something, on ZFS on something or whatever, with the note that it may you may want to supply the disk data blocks with good reading material and detailed maps in case they get lost on a long trek to and from the disk. And his personal favorite, split up all the devices into the largest divisible common unit multiple of all the disks, determine just the right way to stack and assemble all the bits and come up with 12 or whatever. Wrap the results in a uh, Holocaust cloak and then fire and push it towards the castle gate. Uh, that's all seemed to either not give the desired result or to be the wrong type of complexity or quite what I thought I'd give it a go. So criticizing other solutions as too complex while I contemplate my own particular combination of cogs, pulleys, and strings would be unsporting. Anyway, I did consider using RAID frame but to bolt together each six and two disks to pretend to be eight. And then I could, uh, then they recalled that NetBSD has CCD, a delightful little, little artisanal driver uh, for the latest couple of decades. Uh, CCD can be used to stripe together multiple disks or concatenate them, or even a combination stripe until one runs out and then use the other kind of thing. Since I've been trying to pretend to ZFS that no, no, really, you have three identically sized disks, just trust me here, I elected to do concatenation. Uh, and as the first gust of 
pretending this might be uh, a serious attempt to make something useful, I decided to use uh, labeled wedges. Uh, and when something inevitably fails and devices just go away, the system might have a vague chance of determining how to fit together uh, whatever pieces remained. So before the script, which always has to be a script uh, encoded with the necessary magic, uh, with cryptic, misleading, and occasionally incomplete uh, or completely incorrect comments, uh, how did this work? So shows that he's got two two terabyte disks, two six terabyte disks, and one eight, uh, and he wants to basically build that into a RAID Z three or sorry RAID Z one with three disks, which is not a lot of redundancy. So basically, he took his 8-terabyte disk as one disk and said yay. Then he took each of the 6-terabytes and paired it with one of the 2-terabytes to make a virtual 8-terabyte uh, disk. I really don't recommend doing it this way. Like they said, you could have just made a RAID Z1 out of the two sixes and the 8s, and it would have acted as if you just had three 6s. Uh, you'd only be losing out on 2-terabytes. Is that that big of a deal? It would be much less fragile and wouldn't involve... You know, the biggest problem with this setup is that, you know, virtual disk one is one of the six terabytes and one of the two terabytes. And just because of age and so on, it's probably going to be that two terabyte that dies. And when it does, you're going to basically not be able to use the data off the six terabyte anymore either. And so you're not going to be in a very good place. Uh, I do agree that, you know, the easiest option is just do the RAID Z with the mixed size disks and get the lowest common denominator. And then over time, you can replace the smallest disk with a bigger one and eventually get more space. Um, this option to the concatenating is probably the least complicated. The other one of like partitioning all the disks up into chunks of two terabytes and trying to figure out how to puzzle piece those together uh, is even worse. Hmm. At least this way, he has a RAID Z1. If any one disk dies, uh, it's going to take out one virtual disk, even though it's made up of two physical disks. Uh, but at least it's not going to take out the entire pool. Uh, so it just shows here using CCD to concatenate those two, uh, each of the two and six terabytes into pairs uh, and make an extra eight terabyte and then create a RAID Z of those three. Uh, yeah, it works, I guess. <laughs> um, when a two terabyte dies, you might be able to get away with replacing it getting the CCD working again, and then a zpool scrub will just find that any data on the two terabyte drive is corrupt, and you won't have to rewrite all the data that was on the six terabyte if it's not the one that died. But I feel like that's pretty fragile. Mm. For a backup system or whatever, maybe, but really the question is, you're using ZFS because you really don't want to lose your data. And if you really don't want to lose your data, why are you resulting to monkeying monkey patching together a bunch of two terabyte disks instead of just getting some new disks. Uh, so this will work, uh, just not very well. And it's mostly a matter of, you know, as long as you realize how dodgy this is and you're okay with that, then sure, go ahead, you do you. But uh, it's not a tutorial of sorts that we recommend. Yeah, yeah. I uh, don't recommend trying to make one of these kind of skunk raids. <laughs> Yeah, but definitely interesting what people are using ZFS for or with, and um, maybe someone else has an interesting use case or how they do their remote backup and to restore. And next up, we have an article from the FreeBSD Foundation's uh, blog where they talk about the wireless networking basics, uh, Wi-Fi and Bluetooth in particular. 
and they start off with they also it's it's a bit of a how-to so we have a lot of uh, configuration sections and uh, file uh, contents so they start off with a wireless network card is required to use a wireless network FreeBSD will also need to be configured to the correct wireless network support the correct module will need to be modified depending on the type of networking card the most commonly used wireless devices are those that use parts made by Atheros. Uh, these devices are supported by the ATH driver and require the following line to be added to bootloader.conf, which is if underscore ATH underscore load underscore equals yes. If unsure about and the device... Basically, it just loads the, the kernel module. Mm, yeah, if it uh, wasn't detected by the deathmatch utility already. Uh, if you're unsure about the device, you can identify many common wireless adapters through the use of the sysctl net.wlan.devices uh, variable and that will list the ones it has found under this uh, directory tree or device tree even. And then to load the support for those, uh, substitute the if underscore with that specific, specific uh, card name. Uh, there's also in the FreeBSD hardware notes available in the release information page on the FreeBSD website, the supported available wireless drivers and the supported adapters listed so that you can shop for those or find them cheap online somewhere. Uh, in addition, the modules that are implement uh, or they implement the cryptographic support for the security protocols to use uh, must be loaded. These are intended to be dynamically loaded on demand with the WLAN module. Uh, to load these modules at boot time at the following, so you load the WLAN underscore WEP, WLAN CCMP and WLAN TKIP. And that will be uh, all. And then when you boot next time or check out your dmesh log, then you find that these cards are directed or found and given a numbering in the device. Uh, connecting to a network. So right now we just loaded the modules and drivers. Let's directly connect to an unsecure network. While not recommended though, it is extremely common. It's also a very simple process on FreeBSD. In this example, they'll be connecting to the John F. Kennedy International Airport's free Wi-Fi. Oh, that's okay. That's very specific. Uh, start by finding the name of the network. So I have config WLAN zero up scan. This will look for available networks and return a list. And then you pick the one that you like to, like to connect to. And in this case, the JFK free Wi-Fi. So you say uh, SSID underscore uh, the name of the Wi-Fi. Hopefully you will see that it's joined and running if config ATH0 would show that it's associated. You can then get an address with the H client WLAN0. Then you have a section on a more secure setup, right? With the WPA, WAP2, or even personal key. Uh, that's this detailed in that particular section. Yep. Or, so they show basically what you put in wpasupplicant.com to connect to different networks. Yeah, I even found uh, that you can also don't need to put in the clear text password in there. It also supports a hash value. So you don't need to put the real password in plain text into the uh, WPA supplicant. You can also provide a hash value. Um, then they have a section on FreeBSD as an access point, right? The other way, be the ones that provides the Wi-Fi network access to other devices in the first place. Uh, that can act as a gateway or to eliminate the need to purchase another access point hardware. So we can let FreeBSD do all the heavy lifting here. Uh, before continuing or configuring a FreeBSD machine as an access point, the kernel must be configured with the appropriate networking support for the wireless cards, as well as the security protocols being used. 
This mode is only supported by native FreeBSD wireless drivers, so otherwise you won't have much success. So setting these up, you can check if this device supports host-based access point mode by doing ifconfig wlan0 list caps capabilities for short, and this should have the host AP capability in the driver caps listed, otherwise it won't be an access point. Uh, then they talk about how to create one, like setting up a uh, proper net mask for it or giving it a nice little name for the access point. So that is all done using ifconfig. And with the host per AP parameter indicating the device interface is running in the host-based access point mode when you list at the ifconfig wlan0. Cool. Then there's a smaller section for uh, USB tethering in case you are uh, out of nowhere and you need your mobile phone or your cell phone to uh, connect to the outside world, which may not be very cheap, but here we go. Many cell phones can share data connection over USB. FreeBSD provides support through a variety of protocols. Before attaching a device, load the appropriate driver into the kernel. This is the IFURNDIS, the generally used by Android device uh, load, loaded driver. Then there's the IF, IFPHTH, which is by Apple, and IFCDCE, which is a driver often used in older devices. And once those are attached, you will find a new UE0 will be available as a network device. Yep, and then it's connecting out to the network. Uh, then there's sections on how to use Bluetooth. So loading the module, finding the devices, how to scan and find what other uh, Bluetooth devices there are and how to establish the pairing. Yep. Quite nice and straightforward too. So people should be fine running all networks and uh, wireless things in no time. All right, time for our news roundup in this episode. We have news from the PlayStation folks, but maybe nothing so exciting. A hole in the NetBSD driver could allow code smuggling. Yeah, so a security researcher has discovered a vulnerability in a driver in NetBSD that is shared and also used in Sony's PlayStation. Uh, they don't say which version of the PlayStation. Uh, attackers can possibly inject their own code into affected devices by manipulating network packets. Uh, and there's updates available to resolve the vulnerability, um, but you know you might not want to be doing that if you're trying to to affect the thing. So uh, the IT security researcher uh, named MoonBSD discovered a vulnerability in the PPPoE driver in the PlayStation 4. Why does the PlayStation 4 ship with the PPPoE driver? I guess that's how some people connect to the internet. Um, through which the uh, an attack device when establishing a connection by receiving several manipulated packets, composes a large response packet and a buffer overflow can occur in the memory outside of the allocated ones. Uh, then it gets overwritten. Uh, according to the description, the attacker controls the size and the contents of the overwritten area. And in the case of this buffer overflow, the vulnerability uh, received a high risk score of 7.4. Ooh, yeah, that's quite high. So uh, there's a write-up on it on HackerOne, a bug bounty platform. Uh, and it's also possible the PlayStation 5 is affected since it probably uses the same PPPoE driver. Mm. Has the problem been fixed in the upstream BSDs? Yes, I think so. Yeah, uh, and sure. Sony has paid a $10,000 bounty to the researcher. Okay. That's already something from... Because sometimes you have 
companies be less uh, friendly to people finding bugs and reporting them to the companies. Yeah, so it says here that uh, NetBSD 9.2 and 8.2 uh, were vulnerable and have been updated, and the updates have been available since March 4th. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, well, this is fairly uh, decent and current. Okay, so people are aware now about these things. Uh, we have also news from Adrian de Groot's website. Uh, we can have now FreeBSD CI for KDE or KDE FreeBSD ICI. More like. <laughs> um, he writes, KDE runs a whole bunch of continuous integration builders. These try to build KDE software from version control all the time and are triggered by commits from developers. We might quibble over the name CI, but at least we know most of the time that the code compiles and the tests run and pass. Here's the KDE FreeBSD overview page. This is linked from the blog. And Adrian probably complained uh, about Jenkins status indicators before. He never knew how the status indicators, colored balls and cloudy skies are supposed to steer him towards relevant issues. Red balls are bad. That is all he's got uh, for sure. Recently, David Fowry, not sure, uh, has been working on getting all the FreeBSD tests for frameworks to pass. So we get blue balls, I guess. This is a consummation devoutly to be wished. So I've been poking at those tests as well. Uh, since he does not usually poke much at KDE frameworks, this is an education for him as well. Not that the tests are as straightforward as one might think though. On the CI, there are four Plasma framework test failures as of today or writing of this blog, while locally they get three failures, only one of which is also a failure on the CI. And the one shared failure has entirely different specific failed test cases. That makes it doubly difficult to track down what the actual problem is or how much the test depends on the specific desktop setup on the developer who wrote it. At least one test got a small fix from him because it fails when the or a dot dot who says you can have only one plasma panel is on the left hand edge of the screen. Uh, okay, so there's slow but steady progress. Someday we'll all be sunny and blue, which is different from being fuzzy and blue. A good song. Look it up. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting thing with CI. It's like in the CI, four tests fail. When I run the test locally, three tests that worked in CI don't work on my machine. Three of the tests that didn't work in CI do work on my machine. One test fails on both, but it doesn't fail in the same way. Yeah, that's a discrepancy right. there. What? <laughs> yeah, so thanks, Adrian, for that uh, insight. That's, um, and I like his um, engagement continuing uh, with KDE and FreeBSD, combining the two, making sure they both have uh, news about each other and work well together. Well, and like you said, specifically, getting... FreeBSD to be run in the KDE CI so that, you know, instead of what used to happen would be KDE developers work on the next version of KDE for a year or two, and then they release it. And eventually somebody finishes getting it all ported to FreeBSD. And then we find out there's a bug uh, that's specific to BSD, or they added some Linuxism by accident or something. And we go and tell them and like, yeah, you know, I worked on that like a year ago. I don't remember. I don't have time right now. Sorry. Uh, and it can take a long time to fix. Whereas if it's in their CI, you commit something and like within a couple hours, you get told, hey, that breaks something here. And you go, oh, I can fix that real quick. Uh, and it means that we don't have this long delay period before they find out about the bugs and that they usually get fixed because the person making the change finds out about it while they're still thinking about that change, not a year later. Yeah. 
So next up, we have an article from uh, Julio Marino about remembering build tool. So he says, build systems are one of my favorite topics in software engineering. If I recall correctly, my interest in this area started when I got into NetBSD back in the year 2002, so 20 years ago, and became a package source contributor. Packaging software for NetBSD made me fight various build systems, and in particular, experienced the pains of debugging the GNU auto tools. Around the same time, I was also writing small tools here and there. Out of inertia, I used the GNU auto tools for these, and the more I used them, the more I saw an opportunity for improvement. The GNU auto tools were slow, hard to deal with, and they bloated every package. Why did they have to ship a heavy configure script, a makefile.in, and libtool scripts in every single distribution file when you could readily rely on a few system-wide scripts? And thus, BuildTool was born in the summer of 2002, just before I started college, and I worked on it for about two years. The build tool project recently came to mind, and I noticed that its website is still up and running, so kudos to SourceForge for that. So I poked around a bit. Just by looking at the user's manual, I'm amazed at how comprehensive the tool is, and it makes me jealous of how much free time I must have had back then. <laughs> Since noticing this, I had uh, been meaning to try the tool again and write a post, and finally got to it just yesterday. So let's take a tour of build tool uh, and what it was uh, has achieved. So BuildTool was originally inspired by the FreeBSD and NetBSD build systems. The idea was to leverage system-wide generic build logic uh, files to build libraries and binaries. So on the BSDs, you have bsd.lib.mk and bsd.prog.mk, which provide basically all the recipes you need to build a library or a program. And so when you want to build one of those in FreeBSD, the make file is just like, Here's the name of the program and list the source files and make a library called this or make a program called that. Uh, and it does all the stuff and takes care of man pages and does all the various bits. And it saves you having to have all that boilerplate in each individual make file. And you, you have arbitrary packages rely on those installed files. As an end user, you would have to install build tool first before you could build any other packages, but you would only pay the cost of the build infrastructure once. While this paradigm is accepted today, it was quite a departure from tradition back in the early 2000s. Uh, BuildTool's first version back in 2002 was precisely what the NetBSD build system was. The 0.1 release shipped with a copy of NetBSD's make tool, renamed to bt underscore make, along with a few of the MK files uh, to build the common targets. This release also included a rudimentary GNU auto tools-like tool. Later on, it grew uh, bt underscore wrap, helper utility to deal with platform incompatibilities when invoking common tools such as the compiler. This idea was inspired by package sources BuildLink3 and its wrappers infrastructure, which to this day still wrap uh, the compiler and linker to paper over any platform-specific oddities. Reading through the release notes, I can see how this helped make BuildTool work on Cygwin and macOS 10 back in the day. Towards the latest release of the project in 2004, things took a significant turn, with btmake and btwrap were removed in favor of bt underscore logic, a custom-made build system purely based on shell scripts. If I recall correctly, the first version of bt logic was written in Perl, but it never shipped because the build tool relying on a gigantic Perl dependency was a non-starter. Hmm. Uh, by the beginning of 2005, I canceled the project for the reasons I'll cover at the end of this post. So then he talks about how it builds itself. Uh, the version that came out July 4th of 2004 so about 18 years ago, is still available for download. Uh, it was written in about 10,000 lines of shell, 
uh, but the distribution includes a slimmed down version of NetBSD's bin slash sh called bt underscore sh. Uh, the reason Detra for btsh was pretty much the same as Debian's Dash, a portable, high performance, and standard compliant shell interpreter to run the scripts. Uh, BTSH helped keep uh, build tools implementation simpler since you didn't have to support all the different versions of SH. You could just build for the NetBSD SH. Uh, the reason I'm mentioning BTSH is because trying to build uh, build tools version 0.16 on a FreeBSD 13 system today fails due to a couple of bugs in the C code. Uh, fixing these bugs is a matter of avoiding trivial conflicts among repeating symbols in different modules. After those simple fixes, build tool installs and uh, works successfully. The installation process quoted above tells us that we should create a system-wide configuration file and run build tool swcgen, which stands for system-wide configuration generator. Uh, so then he takes a look at what that looks like, knows what the compilers are and whether you have M4 and things like that. And he says, interesting, the configuration file is all about caching, but caching of what? You see, one of the problems I had with GNU AutoTools is how every single package I built and installed on my machine had to go through a very costly configure script to figure out what existed on my system. It was mind-blowing to me, and still is to this day, how many CPU hours the world burns on a day-to-day -day basis checking if a system has standard headers and functions. Couldn't we just check this once uh, and have all the packages reuse those results? If the system has vfork, for example, it will continue to have that function for the foreseeable future. It's not going to go away. We don't need to check for it every time we build any software. Yeah, if AutoTools could learn to do that, I imagine that would shave like an hour off a Pudre run or Easily. something. No. So it talks about how that works. And then he talks about some of the commands, you know, configure, build, clean, dock, package flags, wizard, etc. Provides a demo, uh, looks at one of the top level generic dot build tool files, what that looks like. Mostly looks kind of like a uh, make file, but done in a more C or shell function style. Yep. Talks about how it creates source files, all that works, how to run the configure script on a demo and build the demo and then run the compiled thing and then install it to the right place and then make a package out of it so you can distribute it uh, looking at the data directory and so on. So what happened to it? Build tool as it was in its 0.16 release in 2004 seems fairly impressive. The user manual is comprehensive. The tool provides many more features than I remembered, and it still works to this day. So what happened? Why did I officially cancel it in 2005? There are a few reasons. The first is that build tool collapsed under its own complexity. Shell is not the right language to write a build system in, and the BT logic became an unmanageable mess to deal with. I'm surprised it still works on a modern system, to be honest. The second that is that even though build tool seems complete, it still lacks a lot of functionality and the missing functionality wasn't easy to implement. When I was writing the tool, I found myself uh, leaning on the GNU auto tools manual to understand how things worked across systems and relied on those details to implement my own versions. The more I did this, the more I learned about the GNU auto tools and the more I realized how knowledgeable the GNU auto tools authors were and how far it is from providing something comparable. Uh, this was humbling. Furthermore, during the process, I had uh, to become fluent in the GNU auto tools, kind of obviating the need to build something as an alternative to them. And the third is that having to install a supporting build tool to compile fundamental system packages wasn't well seen at the time. Every time I had to deal with a similar system in package source, like uh, boost.jam or whatever Mozilla's thing was, 
it was a pain. Like it or not, the GNU Auto Tools are de facto standard, and despite all of their flaws, they're the one that integrates well with the packaging system and system tools that we have today. My interest in build systems remains, and when you uh, have read here, partially explains why my original critique of Bazel. Uh, I ended up working on Bazel for a few years, though, because I like the topic. No matter my original comments, Bazel is a great build system for which many others should learn. Um, but it's still missing the kind of system level integration that build tool provided with its install and package flags command. One thing I will note is how build tools already had a concept of high level targets from a semantic perspective. You could make a single build file define various targets, libraries, programs, etc., and each one of those would know how to build, install, and clean itself. You can see that same idea has evolved in most of today's build systems in some form or another, and that the file level dependency tracking that Make provides is a thing of the past. Uh, so to conclude, let me add that I still believe there is room for something like Build Tool in this day and age to support the foundations of free Unix-like systems, but it would need to be much better designed and implemented than Build Tool was. I have ideas. I just wish there was some. Uh, I had the same amount of free time that I had when I was a student. Mm. Boy, do I feel that about yeah. the free time. Uh, but I like definitely. Uh, Julio's uh, breadth and depth he goes into his blog posts. Um, in each of these, we found a lot of gems and nuggets and wisdom. Yeah, writing good blog posts is uh, a skill and mm -hmm. it takes practice. Oh, yeah. Here we go with the Beastie Bits this week. We have a couple things that we found here and there that are interesting for people to check out. The first one is, by the way, Kubernetes for FreeBSD. Uh, we found this on medium.com on Tony Norland's blog or uh, messaging. In order to extend the audience a bit for the planned third part of build a managed Kubernetes cluster from scratch, where I intend to connect the control plane with uh, using the extremely flexible Cilium CNI, I created a FreeBSD port of the components required. And you can fetch the code or binaries at his GitHub repository. And we see certainly Kube control version dash OYOYAML, you can see that there is the platform FreeBSD slash AMD64 listed. Cool. Yep, and you get uh, Kubelet, KubeCTL, KubeScheduler, KubeController and Kube API server. Yeah, so this is starting to happen and uh, may give you a Kubernetes cluster in timely fashion. Uh, looks like the also on the same page from two days before have a release of Illumos packages for it as well. Oh, okay. This is becoming more and more interesting. Okay. We'll, we'll check the space for future updates here. <laughs> there will be more, I guess. Uh, and then we found a FreeBSD games uh, directory since this is very popular. Uh, what does this do is also on GitHub on Tiger Sharky. Uh, synopsis says that this idea is a collection of screenshots, animated GIFs of play, sample configurations for varying levels of performance, along with descriptions, all for the games available via the FreeBSD port system. Uh, so they have, uh, what do we have? Ah, so I have a games directory top and bottom. Oh, this is a web page. Let's see what this has. Looks like it's still being built, but they have, uh, mind test images up so far. And then they're got a bunch of games in here. Looks like they started alphabetically, so they have, uh, you know, zero AD overkill, twenty forty eight, three D pong, you know, 
in, <laughs> in games that start with the letter A. The usual suspects, yeah, with the A category. Okay, so people... Afternoon Stalker, which is apparently a maze shooter for arcades. Ah. So I'm fairly sure they will accept um, contributions here and will be happy to get uh, pull requests and stuff. So uh, let them know if you have some games working that uh, other people should also be able to play on FreeBSD. Could help uh, pass some time. Next up from the OpenBSD journal, we have Candlelit Console Patch. So Crystal Calipet uh, writes about her work on a frame buffer console saying, I wanted to see how to add a night mode to the OpenBSD frame buffer console to give the text a yellow tint for more comfortable nighttime viewing, along uh, with quite a few other cosmetic tweaks, such as adding support for strikethrough text and double underlining. The article explains how to dynamically adjust the color palette, add new sysctl values, and add a new escape sequence to the console emulation code in the kernel. And so it has a link off to the article that explains how to do it. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting idea because a lot of people spend a lot of time at night on the console, so we may uh, have a bit more eye candy yeah, and, of sorts. You know, my phone has a night mode, and you know you can get Redshift apps for things. But if you just have the terminal, you'd have to teach the frame buffer to do it for you. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you don't get much sleep <laughs> after the coding is done. Okay, uh, if you have other bits and gems like this, or bigger blog posts, smaller stuff for the Beastie Bits maybe, then send this to us. We'll be happy to feature them in future episodes. Uh, feedback at bsdnow.tv is the address where you send them to. And this is also where you can reach us with a question of your own, which goes into our feedback and questions section. Uh, the first one this week is Dan, one of the Dan's, <laughs> uh, with a couple of things. Okay, here we go. Uh, Dan writes, howdy, magic voices in my ears. <laughs> oh, great. Uh, that's original. Uh, first, thank you for this wonderful weekly update. I submit many podcasts, but you're the only, you're the only one that gets auto-added to the top of my queue. We must be doing something wrong here. Um, oh, here we go. Secondly, thank you to Benedict especially. Why? Oh, some of your fortune contributions have saved me more time than I can measure. Oh, okay. Yeah, I put a couple of them in there. Um, yeah, I appear on a couple of login screens uh, in yeah. BSD systems. <laughs> Sadly, I think most of the ones where my name appears uh, are not really... I can't take credit for them. They were just ones about the bind tools like drill or sorry uh dig mm. and i updated him to be about drill when dig got removed so it's not really my tip as so much as i was just the last person to touch it to update it so that the tip would actually still work yes yes and uh, I'm i didn't, sure. i didn't think up the tip yeah there's plenty of stuff we could contribute there and alan could easily pull out a couple of zfs tips out of his sleeves uh to add there uh so yeah this is the fortune file uh, lastly, a question. What is a good, safe way to update dozens of jails in bulk? I have a host with 30 to 40 jails on it. Wow. Some of which run production databases that will occasionally break if I forget to stop the database service before doing a package update. Is it possible to bring down jails into something like single user mode? Or maybe to stop them entirely and use package dash dash change root and then the jail path? Or package dash dash root jail path? Yeah. Today I'm using a very ugly while loop uh, like the following. You go service dash e uh, pipe that to dev null 
uh, grab-f user locally dc rcd uh, to find out which yeah uh, basically getting active. every rc name and mm. doing service name stop on it all over um so i forget some of the differences between package chroot and package root i know chroot ties the chroot to the directory first but if the jail is entirely stopped your jail manager likely has unmounted the slash dev in the jail and then package might not work and then if you do package dash dash root that should do the right thing Hmm. Yeah. So you can do yeah, using the package dash dash root while the jail is stopped is probably the easiest way. So stop the jail, package root, do it, and then start the jail. Um the way I do it on ours, we don't have the problem while doing an upgrade. So we generally uh stop all the jails, replace the OS version, start all the jails, then just do a package upgrade dash F inside. And then stop the jails and start them again to, to pick up the new files. But because of the database, yeah, you probably want to stop the jail, package, dash dash root, jail path, upgrade, uh, and then uh, be able to start the jail again. Um, you might be able to use the shutdown command or like... Um, rc.shutdown or something with the right arguments to leave init running but nothing else um but then it's not really doing much it's one other option is you might be able to use the jail command to modify the running jail and there's uh, an option called persist which means the jail stays running even when there's nothing running in it and so you would be able to kill off all the processes in the jail by just running rc.shutdown or yeah etc rc.shutdown or whatever but the jail would stay running and then you could just use package-j and the jail number and tell it to do that uh another trick i use for this type of thing is i use the nullfs stuff to mount the var cache package from the host into each jail before i do the package upgrade so that each jail isn't re-downloading the same files mm, yeah uh because often I'm, I run package upgrade on the host first before I do the jails. Uh, and so I've already downloaded most of the packages. Uh, and so then I just nullifest mount that into each jail so that the jails uh, don't download the same packages when I've already downloaded them on that machine. Hmm. Or you could NFS share that into multiple ones. Well, multiple ones could override them, right? So this is a read-only mount? Uh, mine... Uh, I do read right. I just, uh, you wouldn't want to do that if you're trying to use it on multiple jails at once because yeah. then they could collaborate each other. But uh, just a normal read write nullfs mount and mounting var cache package from the host into the var cache package in the jail and then running package upgrade. And then I unmount it and go on to the next jail. Yeah. Okay. We generally only have like six jails on each machine and none of them are running uh, anything that's going to freak out and corrupt by running package upgrade while it's running. Like MySQL or MariaDB are designed for you to upgrade the binary and then just restart it. But I do imagine there are some programs that are going to have problems with that. And yeah, stopping the jail outright is definitely the best way, but you could use the persist option to keep the jail running even when there's no processes in it, shut everything down, then, you know, jxec into it to, uh, to run the package upgrade and then you could just restart the jail. Uh -huh. Yeah, make sure before you upgrade, make a snapshot 
of the jail, of course. And then you can go back to where things were still uh, not broken. But if someone else has an idea, let us know. We'll be happy to link this back to this episode. Uh, let's check out the next one. Uh, there's Paul with a BSD business justifications feedback or question. Goes like the following. Hi, Benedict, JT, Alan, and Tom. I'm a data engineer at a mid-sized company dealing with a lot of financial data. There has been a recent push for consistency and security on our network, primarily using Windows and Ubuntu. Uh, obviously, I prefer BSDs, but cannot come up with a good business justification to move us toward FreeBSD versus Ubuntu. Any ideas? Less uh, attack surface, I would say. Uh, you know, some companies like uh, VeriSign that runs the .com root domain servers uh, purposely have half their infrastructure running BSD and half running Linux. And then each of those is actually subdivided and half run bind and half run NSD or some other name server. So that if there's a vulnerability in one of the two name servers or one of the two operating systems, it only at most takes out half of their capacity. Uh, and that allows them to deal with that kind of threat when, you know, they're running the .com DNS resolution. Uh, if that broke, then the entire internet would stop working. Yeah. Uh, so that's one way uh, is just kind of go against a monoculture. You don't want to have all of it on Ubuntu because if, if there's a Ubuntu bug, then that affects everything. Uh, that's one justification you can use. Uh, it depends what you're using it for, where you can really talk about the best justifications. Um, but, you know, one of the previous things was that, you know, Years ago, it really wasn't possible to buy support for FreeBSD, but now it is because I started a company to do it, uh, clarasystems.com. Uh, so if you do need, you know, to be able to say, you know, we can go and buy commercial support for FreeBSD to be able to use it, then that's a solved problem now. Right? You know, you can come and do that. Mm -hmm. Yep. And then it depends, as Alan said, are you talking to upper management or among your peers, your, your colleagues? that are more IT, uh, you know, day-to-day -day working um, on these systems rather than making the high-level decisions. It's a different talking point for each of those groups. Um, otherwise, you would go, if you go down into individual features, then it's uh, always a comparison about the small details and it's not going to look good because then you're making uh, these arguments based on a single feature which could which could be implemented the next year in the other system and so you need to make um, arguments like hey I, let me set up a single system that does a bit of serving of uh, data that we're doing or whatever you do in the financial space and then let them run and like establishing a bridgehead there and then you can say look it's been running it's been maintenance free for a while why don't we start another one and so that way you can say, look, it's uh, getting familiar to my colleagues and for other people, and it's not this odd uh, operating system that no one knows how to use. It's just another system that's very similar to the Linuxes out there. And so that also reduces a lot of fear, uncertainty, and doubt about it. Yeah, and it can also be, you know, why are you choosing Ubuntu? And, and can you use those reasons uh, to make counter arguments and so on? Like if the big concern is security, then, you know, you could look at the fact that FreeBSD ships with a lot less software built in. Uh, so there's that many fewer things that could go be going on and so on. Yep. 
and so it, it always sounds like a battle against each other but typically they or complement each other very well and um, it's typically a good network neighbor that um, it's it's that it has its uses that the other system can't cover and vice versa okay hopefully someone um, has an idea about this or could provide other arguments even that they have used in the past for their company so this is also a good way to get this feedback and knowing about this on the show and letting other people know about it. Uh, Todd is uh, last here today uh, with feedback to prior feedback. <laughs> this is the feedback feedback. Uh, Todd writes, hey, I just heard the latest episode compiling 50% faster and more specifically the question regarding the white MacBook. It may be a little late to relay this information, but just in case, here it goes. I have a 2007 white MacBook that is running NetBSD. There are some quirks to these machines. While they support EFI, they are a little off. The early ones, for sure the 2007 and 2006 models, can run a 64-bit kernel, but boot using 32-bit EFI. This can make for a hassle. Uh, so first thing for Nomad BSD is to make sure that the 32-bit files are present for booting. If not, there are some guides online on how to bake these into images. One other tip, 2007 at least can have its firmware changed, which lessened a lot of my hassles. Uh, it wouldn't boot NetBSD without doing that, so the 2007 and maybe a few other models share some similar hardware to a Lenovo ThinkPad around that time, the X60 and T60. More specifically for this, they share the i945 chipset. No special hardware is required, but the 2006-2007 models can be flashed with core boot and liver boot, which makes the process of getting systems to boot a whole lot easier. And they provide even a link uh, to the liver boot for the MacBook. Cool, that's a nice addition. That's why we do these calls, right? If someone else, if we don't know the, the answer, then maybe someone else did, especially for hardware from 2007. That uh, is still around. Hey, this has a lot of uh, extra stuff like uh, how to enable touchpad and stuff. Make it more responsive. Cool. That's a definitely a well-welcomed uh, addition. Thank you, Todd. Yep, thank you. And this is the episode for today. Uh, if you want to connect with us, then check out our tweets that we put out when there is a new episode happening. Uh, we usually stream to Twitch when things work the way they should work. Um, so we hope to get this running for next time. And of course, this is uh, in your podcatcher, as always, every week at this usual time. Yep, and if you have any articles you'd like to suggest or questions or whatever, send it to feedback at bsdnow.tv. 